Amen. As always, it is a blessing to be here with you all. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I'm the pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. If you're a guest, thank you so much for choosing to worship with us this morning. We're very glad that you are here and we're able to once again worship and get into God's word uh, with us. If you have a Bible with you, you can go and turn to Acts chapter 15. And if you have a Bible, you can go and turn to Acts chapter 15. We have been moving through this sermon series on the book of Acts. I want to start by sharing a little bit of my story with you. So uh, I think it was about 15 years ago when I first felt, I would say, really a burden to become a pastor. I, I would say before that, I probably felt called to it. I felt like it was something God was calling me to. It was about 15 years ago, I was doing college ministry. And we one of the things that we would do as a ministry when, when Christians would, would join our ministry, one of the things I would do, I should say, is I would often ask them, uh, a few different questions just to get a feel for where they were at spiritually, what they believed about God, what they believed about the Bible and things like that. And one of the things I would ask them is uh, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, which by the way, I don't think this is how it works, but if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? I said, what would you say? Like, how would you respond? What type of things would you say? And I got a lot of responses similar to, well, I try to do right by people. I, try, I read my Bible sometimes. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? I'm not perfect, but I try to do the best that I can do, and I know that God knows my heart. There's a lot of what we heard. And the reason that they called me to feel, that caused me to feel a real burden to become a pastor was because it was very rare, and I mean very rare. And, and, and at this time, like I, that, that ministry, we weren't great at bringing in people who were unchurched, people who had been separated from the church, but a lot of students were coming around that had been in church for most of their lives. And the reason that I felt a burden to become a pastor there is because very few of them, almost none of them were able to actually answer that question with any type of a scriptural reference or anything to point to from the word of God and say, this is how I would respond to and answer that question. And that burdened me, to be honest, it grieved me. That oftentimes there are many who have been in the church and, and aren't able to articulate or explain or point to scriptures that tell us what is required for someone to be saved. How does someone become a Christian, become saved from sin? The question of what is required for someone to be saved caused much debate in the early days of the Christian movement, as we'll see in Acts chapter 15 in a moment. And we'll see that what that disagreement looks like as it plays out. But just want to make sure we're caught up on the context here. Uh, the beginning of this passage will begin in, in Antioch. If, you're, if you recall, if you were with us through the previous sermons, uh, the church in Antioch, God had sent some Christians over there because of the persecution around Jerusalem and Judea. And they began to share with others about Christ. And as they began to do that, these Christians whose names we do not know, God used them in powerful ways, and the church was started there. Many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. They ended up uh, getting Barnabas to come. Barnabas ends up getting Saul uh, to come to be an, an, an encouragement and a teacher to them at this time. And one of the things about the church in Antioch is it was far more diverse than the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was an area that was mostly Jews that, that lived there, and so many of the Christians were, were Jewish Christians. Well, Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It had a very diverse group of people, and many of the people that were coming to faith in Christ were what the Jews referred to Gentiles, which is just how they referred to anybody who was not a Jew. So this caused a lot of different problems because many of the Jews that were Christians had associated Christianity with their Judaism. And so they didn't really know how to think well about someone becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus that wasn't also a Jew. So it's this big debate, this big problem begins to take place because of Antioch, because of the work God is doing in Antioch and saving so many different kinds of people. Let's look at verse one in Acts chapter 15. 
It reads, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. That's what they were teaching them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's important that you, we, we remember as we work through this, this chapter that this is the argument. This is the question. It's set up in verse one. This is the question that they are seeking to answer throughout this passage. They're seeking to answer the question, does someone have to be circumcised? Does someone have to, to follow the custom of Moses or the law that we find in the Old Testament in order to be saved? Specifically, a ritualistic law like circumcision. So one of the things that the Jews were doing, and just to, to help us understand potentially from a Jewish perspective why they might think this, God had begun to reveal himself to the Jews that he might reveal himself through them to the world. Right, this is what we see a lot in the Old Testament, that God is wanting to use his people, the descendants of Abraham, to, the Jews, to, to reveal who he is to the rest of the world. And a lot of their heroes in the faith obviously were Jewish. We're talking about Abraham, we're talking about Moses. Even Jesus was a Jew. So it, it makes sense to some degree that the Jews would think, well, in order to be a follower of Jesus, who was Jewish, that we, that we should ask them, those who are Gentiles, to follow some of the, the Jewish customs. Not just ask them, but say, this is a part of your faith now, which is what they were doing. And specifically... Uh, if you're curious about why circumcision was so important, uh, this was the, you, could, you might call the mark of the covenant that God had made with his people, that the head of the household at the time, the men, the fathers, and also the other men in the household uh, would be circumcised. And if you're you know, familiar with the term flesh in the New Testament, oftentimes it, it refers to a sinful nature. So you might see this as a sign that the, the head of the households would do and kind of representing their family uh, in saying, we, we are seeking to remove the flesh, the, our sinful nature. We want to turn away from that. We want to turn to God. And what they're saying is, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to bear this mark as well. This is what we've done historically as we've sought to follow God. But Paul and Barnabas, they respond to this teaching that you have to be circumcised um, and follow this Jewish ritualistic law in order to be saved from sin. Here's what happens in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's one way of saying Paul and Barnabas wasn't having it. They wasn't going for this teaching about what is required to be saved. That word dissension is a very strong word. He's not just saying that they argued with him. That word dissension means an angry or bitter disagreement over fundamental issues. That word can be translated as strife, a disagreement that leads to discord. It's saying that they had a disagreement with these brothers to the point that it led to division between two of them. These are Christians. These are leaders in the Christian movement saying that this is something that's so serious that we're just not going to agree to disagree on this one. Okay. This is not one where I'm just going to say, oh, OK, you know what? You believe what you believe. I'm going to believe what I believe. You know, agree to disagree. We still cool. No, 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 no. They're saying this is what we, we, we will divide over. I'm saying if this is what you believe, we're not playing on the same team. That's what Paul and Barnabas were doing as they were engaging in this disagreement. One thing I think is important for us to know is that in order for a group to be united in mission and purpose, it must be, there must be something that the group is united around. There must be something that those in the group cling to 
that keeps the group united. A few weeks ago, I preached on how incredibly inclusive the gospel is and the family of God is. I talked about how people from all types of backgrounds and walks of life are welcome in the kingdom of God and can walk in unity with others from different backgrounds and different walks of life. The family of God is incredibly inclusive. It has an incredible ability to unite people with many differences. But if we're going to be united and have any kind of real purpose and real impact, we must hold firmly to the things that unite us. Again, if we're going to be united, the things that unite us, whatever it is that brings us together, we must hold firmly to these things. Otherwise, we have nothing that truly unites us. We have nothing that truly bonds us and keeps us together. And Paul and Barnabas are willing to draw a line in the sand around the truth that salvation is found in Christ alone. And if you change that in order to say that anything else is necessary in order for someone to be saved, in order for someone to become a Christian other than faith in Christ, they're saying we draw a line in the sand and you are on a different side of the line than we are. They were intentional about this. They weren't budging. They weren't dodging the truth to make people feel better. They weren't doing anything like that. No, they were arguing and debating to the point of dissension and division between those, between themselves and those who disagreed with them. And for us as Christians, what unites us is Jesus Christ. It is who he is, is what he has done, particularly what he has done to save us, to rescue this world from sin. So we are always to fight against anything that would tear that unity apart including those that teach falsely about what it is to be saved. So this, degree, this disagreement that was such a, a problem there at the church at Antioch when, when Paul and Barnabas are going back and forth with those who are teaching these false things, it's such a big deal that they don't just keep arguing in Antioch, but Paul and Barnabas actually take a trip down to Jerusalem. Let's look at verse three. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And brought great joy to all the brothers. So if you're familiar uh, with, the, with the map at this time, uh, Antioch was, was a bit north. And when you're going down towards Jerusalem, Phoenicia and Samaria are two of the regions that you can choose to pass through on the way to Jerusalem. So they go into Jerusalem to argue about salvation. And on the way, and about how, Jew, how Gentiles can become saved, even if they're not circumcised. And on the way, they are telling the brothers along the way, hey, these Gentiles are becoming believers. And those who hear them are celebrating and it brought them great joy. Verse, verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they, are, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they're sent by the church to Jerusalem. They're like, hey, this is a bigger issue. We got people coming up from Judea, which is the region Jerusalem is in, coming up to Antioch with this false teaching. So now they send Paul and Barnes. Okay, y'all go down to Jerusalem where a lot of the apostles are and a lot of the other elders are, and y'all hash this out with them. Verse five. So they begin doing that. And then, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they're now they're down there in Jerusalem and some of the Jews that, that were Pharisees was like, no, 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 no. We, they have to be circumcised. They have to keep the law of Moses if they're going to be followers of Jesus is what they're saying. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So those are the top leaders in the church, verse seven. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, so this is Peter who, who walked with Jesus, who not too long ago had just been freed from prison. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter's like, y'all already know that God called me to preach to the Gentiles. I've already shared that with you before. He says, and God, who knows the heart, gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave him to us. I believe he's using that phrase, knows the heart, very intentionally in response to what some of the brothers were saying and some of the Jews were saying at that time. Because obviously circumcision is an outward sign. But what Peter is saying is that God knows the heart. Y'all are just looking on the outside, but God who knows the heart gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave to us. This is the emphasis. This is the point that Peter is making. There's a key verse in this whole argument is verse 9. Says, and he made no distinction between us and us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. He points to because of their faith in Jesus, God has cleansed their hearts. He knows their hearts. He has cleansed their hearts just like he has cleansed our hearts. They have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's saying, man, y'all trying to make them keep the law to become believers. And by doing so, y'all are putting a yoke on them that we couldn't bear. That term yoke uh, was often used figuratively to refer to bondage or to refer to slavery. He's saying, y'all are trying to put bondage on them by giving them this yoke that we couldn't even bear. He's saying, y'all are trying to make those who aren't Jews keep the Jewish laws to be saved when we as Jews who have had the law passed down to us generation after generation haven't been able to keep it ourselves. He's saying we haven't even kept this in the way that God has called us to, but yet you're telling them that they should have to do, they should have to keep the laws of Moses. He's saying y'all are trying to make them do something that y'all can't do. It's what he's saying to them. If I can talk real quick about one of the worst things about Christians who are extremely self-righteous, one of the worst things about Christians who have this mindset of, even though I sin and you sin, I can look at your sin and be like, I don't see how somebody can be a Christian and do that. I don't see how someone can be a Christian and commit that type of sin and do that type of thing and respond that way. Y'all heard what that person said? I don't even know how they can be. Now, me and my sin, I'm cool. Like My sin is straight. I'm all right. Me and Jesus, we tight. But that person that sins that way that's different from me. I don't know how that person can be a Christian. I don't know how that person can say they're a follower of Jesus. Let me tell you something about the hypocrisy of it all when Christians are self-righteous like this. When Christians begin to take the stance of you have to keep the law to this degree or keep the commands of God to this degree in order to be saved, in order to, to, to really know Jesus and really walk with him, those Christians have a tendency to hide their own sin. Because if you're, if you're going to carry that around and that's how you're going to look at people, then you can't let people know the wrong stuff that you've done. Then you can't let people see. So now you have to hide and pretend like you're more righteous than you actually are, which actually feeds into the way that you begin to look down onto other Christians. And this is one of the reasons. And I know for um, I've talked to many, uh, many people, many people in this room that have gone to Midtown class. And I've talked about one of the biggest things that they notice as a difference here at Midtown Two Notch from other churches is the emphasis we place on confessing sin. And one of the reasons, there's many reasons we do it. You can go to 1 John chapter 1, you can go to James chapter 5 and look into it. There are many reasons that we do that. But one of them is if you want to be able to both call people to follow a holy, right, a holy and righteous God and call people to repent from sin, one of the ways you can do that to make sure you're not being a hypocrite is if you also are someone that practice confessing your own sin. 
Because then, because then you're not saying, hey, be like me. You're saying, hey, be like Jesus. You're not saying, hey, be like me. You're saying, hey, both of us, all of us here, we need to be repenting and turning from sin. And I would love to invite you into a fellowship of believers where we do this together so you're not doing it on your own. But let's be real, we're in the same place right now. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are Christians that are in the practice of confessing sin to God, confessing our sins to others, as James chapter 5, 16 says, so that we can be a fellowship of believers where all are welcome, so that we can actually be truly inclusive by saying, hey, I got sin, I got to repent from too. You struggle with that? I am too. Let's pray together. Let's encourage each other with the word of God. Let's rebuke each other when we need to, that we might grow and know him more. Confession of sin is something that the self-righteous don't want to do. It's something that those who are self-righteous really struggle to do. It's something that those who are self-righteous come up with a lot of excuses and reasons not to do. But it is beneficial for the people of God to practice confession of sin as we see it in the scriptures. It's important that we remember this point that Peter is making, but far too often, we as Christians, it seems we have forgotten that we aren't saved by our good works. But Peter isn't about to let this moment pass without reminding them of how they are saved. Let's look at verse 11, another key verse in this passage. Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I'm going to read it again. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by our good works, not by all the great things that we've done, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, I want us to pay attention to the tense of the, of the, of the speech, of the verb that, that uh, Peter is using here. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. He's using a future tense when he's talking about salvation. Now, the Bible talks about salvation in a few different tenses. It'll say we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Right now, he's saying we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So he's referring to the ultimate and final end and completion of our salvation. We are freed from this world of sin and death, and we'll be with our Lord forever in paradise. So what Peter is saying here is that when we stand before Jesus as Christians, completely healed, completely whole, completely well. It will be because of the grace, the loving kindness, the favor, the goodwill of God, and not because of any work that we have done when we stand before him. It will be because of him and not because of us. Peter is telling him when we get there, we won't be there because we were circumcised. It will be because of the kindness of God. Peter is telling them when we get there, it won't be because of how well, how good of a job we did at keeping the law. It will be because of what God has done. And in doing so, Peter is speaking to us today. And Peter is telling us that when we get to glory in the next life, it won't be because we were good. It won't be because we were better than anyone else. It won't be because we did what we were supposed to do. It won't be because we shared the gospel with others. It won't be because we treated people right. It won't be because we loved everyone in a perfect way. It won't be because we didn't do anything wrong. It won't be because we earned it in any kind of way. It won't be because of anything that we did. But what the apostle Peter is saying, he said, it, he's saying it will be because Jesus is good, because Jesus is better than anyone else, because Jesus did what he was supposed to do, because Jesus shared his good news with others, because Jesus treated people right, because Jesus loved everyone in a perfect way, because Jesus didn't do anything wrong, because Jesus earned our salvation in every way. It will be because of everything that Jesus did and not what we 
have done. It will be because of the truth that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the end of verse 9 is talking specifically for those who might be self-righteous in their own view of themselves as they relate to God. He's saying, no, no, no. If you think you can boast or prop yourself up or look down on anyone else, this is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about our, our salvation is not something that we can boast about because we think we are better than others. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Christian, when you stand before God, blameless in his sight, righteous, holy and pure, forgiven and free from all sin and all death. And he has wiped every tear from your eyes. It will be because you receive salvation as a gift when you place faith and trust in Christ Jesus. It will be because you received it as an act of love from God that he gives to those that can't earn it, but rather just receive it by faith. Y'all know how a gift works, right? A gift is something that someone just gives because they love you. You didn't earn that. You didn't do anything to merit that. There's a difference between a gift and a payment. Right? Because if you did something the way that you were supposed to do when someone owed you something, then they might give you a payment. But a gift is not, you're not owed a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to make it yours. You just received it as the act of love that it is. And the Apostle Paul is saying, that's what it is to receive salvation. That's what it looks like to understand that God loves us enough that in his loving kindness, he just gives it to us freely if we would trust in him and receive it for the gift that it is. It's not given for those that will point to themselves and say, look at me, look at how good and righteous I am. No, it is given to those that will point to our wonderful Savior Christ and say, look at him, look at how good and righteous he is. This is who receives this gift. Those who know that it is a reason for us to be grateful to God and glorify him and praise him and honor him. That is what this gift is about. I just want to read this verse again, but verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Family, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you're grateful that we're saved by God's grace and not your own efforts or your own righteousness or your own goodness, because your own goodness wasn't good enough. It wouldn't be good enough. And he gives us something, but he gives us his own righteousness. I hope that you, you are reminded day in and day out that God's acceptance of you isn't based off of how well you perform and keeping his commandments, but rather his acceptance of you is based off of his infinite love and kindness and grace towards you. I hope that you know deep in your bones that God isn't like that person that rejected you or abandoned you because you did something wrong, but that he is one that just the same way he accepted you on the first day that you were saved is the same way that he will keep you and stay with you until that day when he returns for his people. That salvation is a work of the Lord, that it is an act of God. It is not an act of, of, of mankind. We didn't do anything to make it happen, but he did it because of his grace. And I hope that you know today, and I hope that you'll never forget that there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. I hope that you'll never forget that there is more forgiveness in your Savior than there is guilt in you. And I hope you know and remember the truth that we see in Romans 5.20, but when it says, I'm going to read this from the King James Version, because I just like how, how it hits on this one. It says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That that is the reason that we are saved, that no matter how much sin that you have in your life, or no matter how much sin you have, you have committed, there is always more grace for you in God, in Jesus, than there is sin in you. That is where our hope lies. 
That is what we trust in. That is what we celebrate. That's why we come together to worship over and over again. We don't come together to worship to try to make God think, okay, God, I'm really serious about following you this time. We don't come together to to worship to try to earn some type of standing with God. No, we come to worship together because we know what our standing with God is because of what Jesus has done. And so we come to worship him, to celebrate him, to seek him more, to grow our affections for him because of what he has done, to be reminded of the truth of who he is and what he has done for us. And family, I hope that when you mess up, when you feel guilt after you have sinned, when you feel shame for something that you have done, that you can look to the cross of Jesus and remember that because of his grace, because of the love and kindness of God that, that we couldn't earn or we couldn't merit, that he died for our sins, that he accepts us, that, that, he, that he is not trying to keep you at arm's length when you've done wrong, that he accepts you every bit as much on the day when you feel your lowest, on the day when you feel the most guilt and the most shame as, as he feels for you and the way that he accepted you on the first day that you became his follower. He accepts, he loves, he welcomes us as if we have never sinned because we are in Christ who has never sinned. I just got to read it one more time, verse 11. But, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So after Peter speaks to them about the glorious truth of being saved by grace through faith, he continues on. And here's what happens, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. So for the sake of time, I won't read everything that James said, but to try to summarize, he makes this case even from the Old Testament. He shows, because this is a misconception a lot of people have about the Old Testament, that God was only rescuing and saving Jews in the Old Testament. That's not the case. So he points out even from the Old Testament how God was saving Gentiles even back then and prophesying that he would save Gentiles even back then. And then James states what he believes they should do regarding all the Gentiles that are becoming Christians uh, and everything like that. He shares with them what he thinks that they should do. So then the elders and the apostles, they all talk about it. They agree with what James is saying. And then they actually write a letter to be sent by Paul and Barnabas back to the Gentiles to let them know what the verdict is, what they have decided together. Verse 24, we get the the letter that that was sent to the Gentile believers. Verse 24, it reads, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Verse 24, just, they just being real clear. Just so you know, we didn't send them to say that to you. We didn't send them to distort the good news of Jesus Christ in their communication with you. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Verse 29, he gives four things that they're to abstain from. Verse 29, you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So essentially, they say to the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. And even when they talk about the four things that they're to abstain from, they don't say you have to abstain from these things to become a Christian. Or if you've done these things and you can't become a Christian, they don't say anything like that. 
Nevertheless, there are four things that we need to, we need to potentially wrestle with that they say to them that, they, that you should not do or that you should abstain from. First one I'll deal with is sexual immorality. So this is any type of sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. He calls them to abstain from that. And I think two things that I draw from that one is it helps us to see that God is not changing anything about the moral law from the Old Testament, right? So this is not a ritual law. This is a moral law that God had given them. What God says is good is still good. What God says is bad is still bad. Verse, and, and the second thing I would say is it's a call to stay away from something that was a norm in that time. And I would say, especially in Antioch. So Antioch was a place that was not looked at by the Roman Empire as, a, as an extremely moral place, actually a place that many people would have looked down on at this time for a lot of things that they were getting into. And sexual immorality was, was commonplace for them. It was, was a norm for them there at Antioch. So he's saying you, you need to stay away from that. He also tells them um, to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and blood and things that have been strangled. So many believe that at this time, uh, because of, especially because of the ways that uh, that Jews at this time would have, would have thought about and seen and, and, and understood blood and, and having some type of contact with someone else's blood, that would have been something that would have been not but been offensive and probably a bit repulsive to Jews that, that would be around this. So what they're saying is when you're eating, stay away from these things. And I believe this is actually calling them to be culturally sensitive to Jews that are believers and probably Jews that are not believers as well, that they want to share Christ with. So one of the primary ways of, of fellowship for the early church and just for people who were living uh, in Antioch at that time and, and in, really in the known world at that time, meals were a huge way of fellowship. And so a lot of times Jews, especially Jews who didn't know Christ, likely wouldn't even sit at a table with someone if they had a food they were sacrificed to an idol or they had blood in or had been strangled. So he's saying to them, hey, don't don't eat these things That's what we're asking you to do and you will be fine. He's asking them to not place a bigger burden back onto the Jews that would have been around them. Just as the, Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the apostles and elders had taken this burden off of them. Let's finish the passage, verse 30 and 31. It reads, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Here's how it was received, verse 31. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This news that they received about the grace of God and their standing with God wasn't based on their work. This led them to rejoicing because it was an encouragement to them. Family about uh, 10 or so years ago, uh, I was doing uh, leading a Bible study uh, at Benedict College. By the way, shout out Outreach Week that's coming up pretty soon. But we're going to need some of y'all to come and serve as we serve students at Benedict College. Um, sign up for Outreach Week. I um, was doing uh, leading a Bible study uh, at, um, at Benedict College. And in order to do that, uh, there was a, a reverend. There. His name was Reverend Davis. And uh, he was the dean of the chapel that was there. So basically anything, quote unquote, religious that was going on on the campus, you kind of had to get his seal of approval in order to be able to do it. So we was able to meet with him a few times, was able to share with him what we wanted to do, what we wanted to be about, and able to connect with him. Uh, and we were able to see eye to eye on, on, on a lot of things, which was great. And so with my experience of college ministry at the time, I was thinking, okay, there's going to be a lot of things that we got to do in order to be like reserve a room and stuff like that to be able to have the Bible study. And so he's telling me, all right, you can go ahead and do it. And so I'm like, all right, what do we, what do we have to do? Are there any hoops that we got to jump through to be able to reserve the rooms and everything that we want? And he was like, no, you're good. And I was like, just, just, just show up in a room and just do, just do what we do, huh? And he was like, yeah, you're good. I was like, 
And we were going to be like using classrooms that were used throughout the week. Um, and, and so I asked him, you know, do we have to like sign up for anything or whatever? And he was like, no. Uh, matter of fact, if anybody gives you any trouble, just tell him you were Reverend Davis is what he said. Just tell him you were Reverend Davis and it'll be straight. I just want to encourage the Christians today because I want to go back to the question that I presented at the very beginning. That if you, were to, if you were to have to, and I don't think this is how it works, if you were to have to stand up before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you win? It's, oh, I'm with Jesus. Oh, I'm, I'm with him. He told me that if I was with him, that I get in. This ain't about nothing that I've done. There ain't no hoops that I was able to jump through or anything like that. I am able to get in because I am with him, the one who died for my sins, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who was sitting at the right hand of the Father right here and right now. We get in because we are with him, because of his grace towards us, because of his loving compassion and mercy towards us. If the way that you would answer that question is anything other than I have placed faith in Jesus, I just have to inform you, you are sadly mistaken. Somehow you have come to believe that you are able to work your way up to God, but the, the, the story of the gospel is that God works his way down to us, to our level, that he would know us, that he would welcome us into his family. I want to encourage us with the truth today that Jesus really is enough for us that he really is sufficient for us day to day and he's sufficient for us all the way throughout eternity. Family, to become a Christian, to be saved, you don't have to jump through hoops. There isn't a list of works that you have to accomplish before he can save you. No, you can just place all your trust in him as Lord and Savior. You can do that right now in your seat. You can do that right now where you are. You can just tell God, I'm ready. I surrender. I want to follow you. I believe in you and what you did to save me. I'm not trusting in my own works. I am trusting in you to save me and make me your own. And it's my prayer that for us who are believers in the room is that we continue to respond to that truth the way the saints responded in verse 31, that we rejoice because of the encouragement that we have found in the grace of God. And family, one of the ways that we rejoice and celebrate the fact that God has saved us is through communion. This is one of the reasons we wanna to continue to do communion each and every Sunday. Is because when we look at the, the bread that represents the body of Jesus and the juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed, this is remind, a reminder to us of what has saved us, that this is what our hope is in, that Jesus came from heaven to us, that he died on the cross for us, that we might be saved, that we didn't earn it, but he earned it. And so we celebrate that week in and week out as a reminder to all of us where our hope lies, that it lies in him and not in us.